Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And I'm so sorry we've been gone uh, for a minute. I've been extremely busy traveling and it's been hard to schedule interviews, but we're definitely back. And in the new year, I promise we'll be back to once a week for the podcast. Uh, We wanted to bring you a special Christmas episode with a dear friend of the Jew3 Project, of somebody who's no stranger um, to... Uh, the organization and a friend of mine, Dr. Esau McCauley. Welcome, Esau. Thank you. You had me at Christmas. If you asked me to come and talk about Christmas, I could do that, I could do that all day. Then I'm going to write a book about Christmas when I have some time. But uh, this, this is, this is a, a great joy. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for being with us on today. Uh, for those who haven't seen you on here before, just give us a little bit of background about who you are. Yeah, my name is Esau McCauley. I teach New Testament at Wheaton College. I got my PhD at the University of St. Andrews in 2017. Uh, in New Testament, I have one book out called Sharing in the Son's Inheritance. That is been T.T. Clark. That's probably too expensive for y'all. It's like 80 bucks and it's mostly a dry academic work. But if you got the money, spend it. I have another book coming out in November 2020 called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. That'll be coming out with an IVP academic in November of next year. And I hope that you all pick it up. And I've written a lot of stuff for Christianity Today, The Washington Post, The Witness to Black Christian Collective. And I have an article coming out with The New York Times on December the 28th about the slaughter of the innocents in Matthew's gospel. So looking out for that on Friday or Saturday. You're famous now. Um. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know about that. I'd say he's famous now uh, when I met him. He was just a PhD student, and he's just blossomed into this famous theologian, scholar. I don't know about I don't know about all of that, but thank you. <laughs> You're gonna embarrass me. <laughs> so we're gonna talk about we're gonna talk about Christmas. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions around Christmas, um, and one of the things it, people always ask is, why do we celebrate Christmas on? Um, uh, December 25th, because Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. And so uh, I'll let you uh, take a take a stab at that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people think that it's related to kind of these pagan holidays that are celebrated on December the 25th. And a lot of times the reason people say that because they have something of a, a very light understanding of the church calendar, mostly because of the people who hear about this come from the Protestant tradition. But let me try to explain this as briefly as possible. In the ancient world, they had this idea that significant events happen on the same day. So they had this idea that someone would, would, would be born on one day and then die on that same day many years later. And so the first thing they tried, they tried to figure out in the early church was, well, when was Jesus? When did he die? And so they said, well, OK, let's know that he died during Passover around AD 30 to 33. And they're trying to figure out what that date was. And because of the, the calendar switching over from a Jewish lunar calendar to the Greco-Roman calendar, they got those dates a little bit off. And they said, well, Jesus must have died on March the 25th. And so they said, since Jesus died on March the 25th, that means that he must, the Annunciation, that is the, the time when Gabriel 
appeared to Mary and told us you're going to have a child. That must have happened on March the 25th as well. So they thought that Jesus died on March the 25th and that the announcement of his birth was on March the 25th. And if you actually go back and look at the early church calendars, the Feast of the Annunciation, that's the announcement of Jesus's birth, was celebrated way much earlier in the church calendar. And what they did is they counted nine months from March the 25th, you get December the 25th, which is the Feast of the Nativity. And so they went from Passover being on the 25th to the Annunciation being on the 25th, and from the, the Annunciation, the announcement of Jesus' incarnation to his birth, which is how you got December the 25th. And the reason people don't, don't know that is because most people don't celebrate the liturgical calendar. And they don't notice the fact that, hey, nine months before, we're here celebrating the announcement that Jesus is going to be born soon. And so from Passover, March 25th, to the Annunciation, to December the 25th is how we got Christmas. Now, we even all kind of recognize this idea that oftentimes Easter is celebrated, which is linked to Passover, sometime in March and April. So that idea isn't to us beyond the pale. But the idea that you would associate someone's birth with their death is kind of an ancient concept. So we all know now that there's no inherent link between when someone was born, and it mean they were necessarily going to die on that same day. We recognize that Jesus wasn't probably born on December the 25th, because the Annunciation probably didn't necessarily happen on March the 25th. But the, the issue behind all of that is that this was not rooted in an attempt to make Christianity more appealing to pagans, but it was an attempt to link Jesus' birth with, the, with his death as it's understood in its relationship to Passover. That's helpful. Um, because I, sorry, I sorry. That's, I'm sorry, that's that's super boring. That's how it happened. <laughs> no, that's helpful. Uh, because I don't think most people know that, and I think that helps kind of frame it for people um, who are thinking about the Christmas story. Um, there. The other, the other thing that the other thing that's distorted about that is the way that we think that holidays work, and kind of the idea that ancient people are stupid. And what we mean is, oh, you to celebrate, you know, this on December the 25th. Just celebrate this and change over to a whole new religion. I mean, first of all, the idea that the state was was enforcing the universal celebration of this holiday in a pagan context, the evidence of it being that universally popular, so popular that the Christians had to compete with it, is historically not very well documented. It's much more common now for us to make a greater deal of this holiday in order to downplay Christmas. But the truth is, the early church is way more into Mary, and it's actually Mary influencing when we celebrate Christmas more than it is a pagan holiday influencing when we celebrate Christmas. And the problem is we don't take Mary very seriously in the Protestant tradition, so that her influence is not taken seriously enough. That That's helpful. When we think about, um, we'll get to women in the Christmas story in a second, uh, but I kind of want to just go through kind of some common objections and and myths about Christmas, or as many people are saying, Xmas. And there's yeah. this whole conspiracy theory around Xmas uh, without people understanding where that came from. Can you just talk a little bit The first word in the Greek um, translation of Christ, the, the Greek word for Christ is a chi, which comes in the form of an X. And so that was an abbreviation for the Greek word for Christos. So, um, Xmas is actually an abbreviation of the Christ Mass. And so the X isn't removing Jesus from Christmas. It's an abbreviation of Christ that was common in the ancient world. 
or at least when it's, it was a kind of abbreviation. I don't know exactly when. That's helpful uh, to, to dispel that that myth. Um, what other, is there any other myths uh, around like the Christmas tree, around paganism and Christianity that you that you think is helpful to address? Um, I think that one of the things that it is important for us to get our minds around is the nature of the Christian calendar. And if we don't understand what the Christian calendar was attempting to do, then we won't understand what Christmas is attempting to do. The, the Christian calendar was a different way of ordering time. So of course, everyone has different seasons they celebrate. So in America, we have July the 4th, we have all of these events, we have February, we have Valentine's Day, we have New Year's Day. And so the, 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 the secular calendar is attempting to form and shape us. So the Christian calendar is in some sense a construct um, celebrating Christmas on this day and celebrating Easter on this day and celebrating um, Pentecost on this day, they're all in some sense creations from the church as we're getting us to think through time differently. And so this idea that the Christian is trying to make a apologetic to the culture, so trying to be more appealing to the culture by having these pagan influences, isn't taking seriously what the liturgical calendar does, which is help us think about time differently. Because instead of ordering our lives according to the secular events, either now or in the past, we're ordering our days and weeks and months and years according to Jesus. And so if the calendar as a whole, right, from Advent to Christmas to Epiphany to Lent to Easter, are shaping us into the likeness of Jesus, then the questions about the pagan influences are in that sense wrong-headed because the entire idea of Christianity is we are in a different world. In a different world, we have a different time. And so I think that sometimes we're so caught up in conspiracy theories and saying the Christians are attempting to steal this or do this, that we don't understand the revolutionary nature of the Christian message itself, which the world is a different kind of place because Jesus has come. So that's what I would say is one of the misconceptions of what's going on with Christmas. It's identifying um, this influence and that influence doesn't take seriously that the revolution at the heart of what became the Christian calendar. That's really, really helpful. And I think important um, to know. Um, let's think about like the Christmas story. And um, there are some things about the Christmas story that I think are really important for us as uh, Black Christians to think through. And when, when we were talking about how we would frame this conversation, um, you mentioned something about Mary's song and its connection to African American spirituality that I think is really helpful um, to our audience. What, what would you What would you say about that correlation? I have, I have a whole section in my book about the testimony of Mary and its relationship to Black Christians. Because one of the questions that's going on in the African American context right now is the justice that we that we seek in society. This hope for the transformation of social structures and the creation of a different type of world. And that's something that is that is in the biblical text themselves, in such that we can read with the biblical text and find the justice that we seek. Or do we need to go against the grain of the text and find our concept of justice elsewhere that we then bring to the Bible as the, as the filter through which we read the Bible? So is the, is the Bible basically our friend or our enemy as it relates to African-American hopes for justice and reconciliation? And when you turn to Mary's song, Mary says in an unequivocal way, basically all the things that an African-American Christian 
want her to say. What I would like, what I like to say is that Mary's song, celebrating the birth of Jesus, was the only thing that we had in the entirety of the New Testament. It would be enough to articulate kind of the, the basic thrust of the African-American hope for justice. And what Mary says is, she says a couple of things, and I don't want to talk about too much. I want to edit the whole thing. But Mary says that Mary says that her soul magnifies the Lord. So Mary begins her song as a worshiper in God. But why is Mary worshiping God? What is she so excited about? She's excited about the fact that God has chosen her to be the mother of the Lord. And why is that important? It's important because Mary was not important. She had no social, cultural, political power. And Mary saw in the choice of someone who is not powerful in society an affirmation of the kind of God that she serves. She she, she, she serves a God who cares about the lowly. And so the very choice of Mary as the mother of our Lord shows us that God turns his heart towards those who are often marginalized in society. But then Mary says something else. Mary says that the God in the choice of her has shown the strength of his arm. Why is that important? The strength of the arm is an allusion to all of these passages in Isaiah where God says he's going to bear his arm and rescue Israel again, just like he did in the Exodus. So when, when Mary says that God is bearing her his arm, it is an allusion to God bringing about a second exodus, a second departure from slavery into freedom. What stands at the center of African-American spirituality? The exodus narrative. And so Mary, in talking about what Jesus is going to mean for the people, it means that his coming is going to be like a second journey from slavery into freedom. And Mary says that in this coming of Jesus, you see that God is taking the people who are lofty and bringing them down, he's lifted up the humble and the meek. And so Mary articulates this, this picture of the inversion of society in which those ignored and smashed by society are lifted up, and those who have historically been lifted up by society are brought down. And so I'm asking, well, what is the African-American hope? The African-American who grows up in the context of a country that's historically oppressed them, this idea that God lifts up the lowly who trust in him and brings down the those who exalt themselves is the African-American hope. And in particular, Mary says, it has scattered the proud and the imagination of their hearts. And, the, and I'm going to be done exegeting right here, but I'll say this. What this means is the people who have power imagine a future for themselves in which they are perpetually in control of society. And the plans that they have are being thwarted or undone by the advent of God. And so Mary in her song pictures a world in which the lowly are lifted up, the powerful are brought down, and the whole world is transformed by the coming of the sun. And this is the African-American beliefs that because Jesus has come, we live in a different type of world. That is extremely, extremely helpful. And I think powerful, um, that connection between Mary and African-American spirituality that I don't think most people think through when they're thinking about um, this story. Um, since we're on Mary, I think it's a, a right to continue on the theme of women in the Christmas story. Um, what is who are other women in the story that you think are often neglected that you you want to mention? Can I say something about Mary too? Because this is you, you got me thinking about fallacies, and now I'm going to go go on about Mary for a second. Because the other thing that happens when, as it relates to Mary and the virgin birth, because people look at the passage in Isaiah. Can we can I talk about the passage in Isaiah for a second and the virgin birth? Yeah. Go ahead. This this is a Christmas fallacy. So people say, well, 
in Isaiah, if you go back and look at um, the Isaiah passage, and it says, the virgin shall give birth to a son, you call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, that Isaiah wasn't talking about kind of an actual virgin giving birth miraculously without the help of a man, that Isaiah is actually talking about a child being born in his time as a symbol of God's salvation of Israel during a time of trial. And so they say that this that this use of Isaiah 7 is taken out of context. But what I, what I like to say about that is if we actually look at what's going on in Isaiah's time, this was happening. Israel's in danger of being destroyed by a foreign nation. And the prophet comes to the king and says to the king, ask for any sign that I can give you to show you or prove to you that God's going to save Israel from this time of trial. And the king at the time says, no, 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 I don't want a sign. And then Isaiah comes back and says, you know what? Your failure to ask for a sign is itself a display of lack of faith. And I'm going to give you a sign. The sign for the hope of, the, of Israel for the future is going to be this child who is born in Isaiah's time. Now, when Matthew quotes this passage, he's saying that Jesus is functioning in the same way in his day. The time where Israel seemed like there was no hope, when it seems like Israel's oppression would be eternal, God has sent in the form of this child, the one who was born, a sign that the hope for the world has come. Now, what makes Jesus the greater Emmanuel in the New Testament is he's actually born of a virgin in, the, in a miraculous way. But it is not the case that the, the Christians saw this passage about a virgin's birth and created this idea for an early Christian theology. What it was was Matthew saw that Isaiah articulated that, that, that a child who was born in his day functioned as a hope, a sign for the hope for Israel. And now that the child who has been born of a real and genuine virgin is now a sign for the hope for the world. So I want to make sure that we kind of had give Mary her full due as an important figure in early Christianity and how she functions symbolically. And so um, in, in addition to Mary, who are some of the neglected women in the Christmas story? Well, there's a couple of them. I mean, we can go all day on the women in the, in the stories. One is Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth was a woman who um, was older, and she had never um, been able to have a son. And because she didn't have a son, she she lived with this sense of shame from the society, who often associated barrenness with some kind of immorality on her part or her um, her. Um, the part of her husband. And so when God, when the angel Gabriel comes and appears to uh, Zachariah telling him he will have a son, and then it uh, the, the son is born of Mary, and the son is born, John the Baptist is, is conceived, and it's Elizabeth, Elizabeth, his mother. It has what I think is one of the, the, the more beautiful images in the New Testament, which is this. There's this older woman who after years and years and years of disappointment finally has this son who is growing within her. And what I'd like to say is that Elizabeth represents kind of the long faithfulness of Christians who have prayed and prayed and prayed, not just for a son, but for God to come in their lives in a miraculous way and have a finally answered. And when Mary gets the message from Zach, from Gabriel that she's going to have a child, she actually goes and visits um, Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth sees Mary, she says, who am I that the mother of my Lord come to me? And that when Mary comes into their presence, John the Baptist leaps in, Mary, in, in Elizabeth's womb. And so the first people to celebrate 
um, the message of the incarnation is Elizabeth, who calls Jesus the her Lord, right? The mother of my Lord. So, so Elizabeth calls Jesus Lord, and her son leaps in her womb. So with her entire body, she's giving glory to God. And she has this picture in Luke Gospel of this older woman who is pregnant with child with a baby leaping in her womb. And then you have this very young woman, Mary, who's also a child. And then Mary sings a song, the Magnificat that we already talked about. And so I call it Christianity the musical, where you have an old woman and a young woman, both of whom are pregnant. And Mary is singing this song, proclaiming the glory of the Lord. There's also a woman named Anna, who is in the temple. And I think Luke does this in, um, intentionally. In Luke's gospel, he, he tells the story of Simeon, who's in the temple, who sees Jesus and lifts him up, proclaims him as the Messiah. And then there's another woman named Anna, who's also in the temple, who was there day and night. And it says when she sees the baby Jesus, she takes Jesus in her arms and begins to speak about him to all the people who are looking for the redemption of Israel. And so Luke presents Anna and Simeon as two prophets, one male, one female, who are both in the temple in um, intentionally sanctified places speaking about the goodness of God. We can go on. There's four women who are in the genealogy who are all foreign women who are nonetheless included in the lineage of Jesus. You talk about people like um, Ruth and Tamar who are, even though they're not ethnically Jewish, are brought into the covenant people of God. And the purpose of putting these foreign women, one purpose of the putting these foreign women in the genealogy is to let us know that that all of us are included within the story of Jesus. It is not a single ethnic group, but the God, the genealogy of Jesus's lineage itself testifies to the universal saving power of the gospel. That's a lot um, for us to think about. And I think it's helpful because as a woman, I think it's uh, important for us to think through how the women have impacted uh or were highlighted in the story and often go neglected um, in the telling of the story. Yeah, because if you think about it, we always talk about the women are the first ones to witness the resurrection. Mm -hmm. But in Luke's gospel, the first woman, the first person, I think this is true, the first person to recognize Jesus as Lord, other than Mary, who says, you know, who am I that, you know, I should give birth to him, is that when Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth refers to Mary as the mother of her Lord. So one of the first people to recognize Jesus as Lord of the world was a woman. And then you go into the temple, and, and I think Luke is intentional about doing this. He has a male lift up the person of Jesus. Then he has a female lift up the person of Jesus. And it's no accident in my mind that when we get to Pentecost, also written by Luke, who do you have? You have the women in the upper room, and you have the 12 in the upper room. And so when the Holy Spirit comes down, you have men and women out there preaching the gospel. And when they ask Peter, what do these things mean? Peter quotes Joel. And what does Joel say? In the last days, I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh. Young men and young women will prophesy. And so Luke sees in the shared proclamation of the gospel by men and women, a sign of the Messianic kingdom coming in and through the person of Jesus. So I think Luke does that on purpose. 
That's helpful. And as you were talking about the shame that Elizabeth had carried all those years, I thought about the shame that Mary would carry for many years to come because most people wouldn't believe her and how God in his providence connected Mary to someone who would understand living with shame. Um, I think that's that's uh, beautiful even to think about that. And the more important thing about this, because like Mary can be Mary and Elizabeth can be used in a um, in ways that I think are tricky. So I think that regardless of how someone gave birth, I mean, how someone got pregnant, it is not the church's job to, to sit in judgment upon these people, but that we should welcome them into the community, anyone who's trying to follow Jesus. And so we shouldn't necessarily be this judgmental society that says, because someone made a mistake, that they are somehow unholy. So I think the church should be a place for uh, forgiveness, reconciliation, and discipleship. That's important, but that's not necessarily the, 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 the ministry of the, the message of Mary. Mary is important because she was mischaracterized. So what I'm saying is the stuff they said about Mary wasn't true. In the same way, the stuff that people said about Elizabeth wasn't true. And what Mary has to live with, the particular statement that Mary has to live with, is being slandered in a way that is not actually true of her character. And she speaks in particular to women whose character are slandered and excessively sexualized when that is not their actual identity. And so Mary is, in essence, a patron saint of all of the malign and the excessively sexualized in society. Because Mary is living her life, she's living her life oriented towards God. And what I'm talking about here is, is in, in some context, kind of the excessive sexualization of the African-American woman, where she's seen as this Jezebel or this temptress, and society puts these identities on her that are not actually true of her character. And so Mary isn't simply this, the teenage single mom. She's the, she's the teenager who is falsely described by society, even though she's kept her, her, her character intact. Mm -hmm. And I think that's helpful. And I think it's so important to note uh, because she can identify on so, with people on so many levels. And um, I love the fact that you said, you know, Elizabeth was also mischaracterized. And I think that is, helpful to think about how God providentially put them together as comfort to one another to say, hey, I know how it is to be mischaracterized. I know how it is to be slandered. Um, Elizabeth, people probably thought things about her that weren't true because she couldn't bear a child. And then you have um, Mary coming into, well, already a part of her life, but coming in to think through, to, to, to connect with her on a different level about how it is to be shamed for something that's not true of her character. So it is it's very interesting and providential that how God connects them on so many levels. And sometimes you got to come to a believer. Um, and what I'm saying, when I say that, I mean, it is no surprise that Mary, because Luke describes Zachariah and Elizabeth as righteous and devout and who walking humblessly and blame, walking in all of the laws of the Lord. So Mary was in trouble and she goes, something is happening in my life. A lot of people won't understand who can I go to? Who's going to understand who I am, what I'm about. And she said, I'm going to go to the people who really know the Lord, who are most likely to believe that what God is doing in my life is actually true. And so he, she goes to Elizabeth and she finds out there that God is working in her life too. Sometimes you need to be with people who understand God and his character. You can't go to people who know nothing about Jesus because they don't understand what you're going through. And so I think that Mary's choice of Elizabeth as the person to go through in this context shows that she expected Elizabeth to believe her. 
And and I, and I think she did that because she knew about Elizabeth's character. And Elizabeth would be able to say, yes, I see what God is doing in and through you. That's awesome. That's a whole uh, sermon in itself. Um. <laughs> Sometimes y'all be going to folks who don't believe in the Lord. And they've been giving you advice that has nothing to do with Jesus. I mean, I'm not saying that Christians are the only people who can give good advice. That's not true. What I am saying is you need someone who believes in the power of the resurrection and a God who invades history to help you with your most deepest and troubling problems. And when Mary was in crisis, she went to someone who knew the Lord. And I think that sometimes going to someone who, who knows the Lord is going to be the place you're going to get the most comfort. Yes. That is extremely helpful. Um, as we're going through this, I think it's important to, to, as we're talking about themes that we could gather from the Christmas story, um, you wanted to mention some neglected theological themes um, in the Christmas narrative. Uh, what, what would be some neglected theological themes that you think we'd miss? Well, one of the things that I want I want to say is a couple of things. Well, first thing I want to talk about is the, the genealogy. We talked a little bit about, about the women in the genealogy, but the, the in the Gospel of Matthew, it began to saying this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Now, why is why does he begin with those two people? One of them is because God made a promise to Abraham that in him all the nations of the world will be blessed. And he promised to David he would have a son who would rule over the world in justice and truth. If you read passages like Psalm 72, it refers to the son of David as the one who cares for the poor and the needy. And so Matthew's gospel begins with an allusion to these promises. And, and, this, and this is what the allusion to Matthew and David at the beginning of these genealogies are trying to say. The promises that God made to bless the world through the reign of the one true king is happening in and through Jesus. So you can't tell the story of Christmas without telling the story of kingship in Israel. You can't tell the story of kingship in Israel without speaking about the vision that God gave for the king. And if you just read the psalm, you see the, 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 the inextricable link between kingship and justice. And so what I'm saying is if you hear the Christmas story and you don't hear this claim that God is in and through his son establishing a different kingdom with different values, then you're hearing it wrong. We know this is the case because when you get later into the gospel and Jesus gives his first sermon, what does he preach? He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to, to set the captives free, to heal, the, to heal those who are lame. And so the Christmas story begins with an allusion to Jesus' kingship. And Jesus' kingship is one in which those who are historically neglected in society are lifted up. This is the reason why later on in the gospel, John the Baptist, who ends up in prison, is, is asking this question. Because he's not experiencing the kingdom as he expected it. And he sends a dis disciples to Jesus. And they ask Jesus, are you the one who should who is to come or should we look for another? What does Jesus do? Jesus then takes these disciples of John the Baptist and he heals the sick. He takes care of the needy. He says, blessed is the person who is not offended by me. And what Jesus is saying in that is when John is questioning who Jesus is, Jesus answers the question by further reaffirmation of the concern for the needy. And so at the center of this gospel, of this incarnation story, is this idea that God is creating a certain kingdom, which his values for society are made clear. This is also seen in the fact that Jesus is born in humble circumstances. Later on, when Jesus begins to talk about John the Baptist, he said, when you went out in the wilderness, 
What did you go out to see? He said, the people that find clothes live in palaces, but that's not where John was. John was someone who was in the wilderness. And the same thing can be said about Jesus. When the incarnation happened, he was not incarnate in the palace in the Jerusalem. He was incarnate in a humble circumstances in Bethlehem. So what does it mean when at the center of the Christian story is the all-powerful God coming in humility? That means the church itself does not find its voice by seeking political power, by influencing the world at the heights of authority. That is not the church's hope. The church finds its hope when it follows in the path of its savior who transformed the world, not through the acquisition of power, but through its rejection and through concern for those whom the the world historically neglects. So while people thought they were making a decision about the future of the world in Jerusalem, the real future of the world was being settled in Bethlehem. That means that the future of America is never being decided in D.C. The future of, of the world has already been decided in the person of, of, of the Christ, and now it's only our job to remain faithful to that promise. What What is a neg another neglected theme? Oh, man. I would say um, the incarnation has how God comes to us. Because we live in a world that is broken, that is full of violence, that is full of death. And the question is, how will God woo us back to himself? If we're alienated from God, how does God come to us? And God doesn't come to us with kind of an intellectual um, argument explaining why there's evil in the world. God comes to us in incarnation where he comes alongside of us. It, it is a, tr a tremendous act of humility where God doesn't just download an explanation for our pain from on high, but he comes alongside our pain. Paul talks about this, excuse me, as Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming a human being. So at the essential truth of, the, of Christianity then is that God woos us to himself by coming into our pain and transforming it from within. Irenaeus, uh, the, the early ancient church father, talked about this doctrine of recapitulation. And the doctrine of recapitulation is this, is that in the incarnation, Jesus goes through every stage of the human existence. And in as much as he goes through each stage of the human existence, he, he brings those things back to God. So Jesus's childhood is an act of, of, of reconciling our childhood back to God. Jesus is ethnically Jewish is, is a way of, of reconciling ethnic identities back to God. Jesus, as an adult, is, is he, he brings our, our, our adulthood back to God. And so what you see in the incarnation then, according to Irenaeus, is this great reorientation of the entirety of the human life back towards its original source and its original creator, which, who is God. And so I would say that we have not begun to take the incarnation seriously until we've begun to take the glory of God seriously. But unless we understand how high and exalted God is, we won't understand the depth of his humility, his, his humility in coming amongst us as a child. Because one of the things that is, it, it is you get when you're younger, you tend to think that you're unkillable. And since you tend to think you're invincible. And the older that you get, the more you realize that our bodies are permeable. 
we're imperm we're we're very we can be killed and when you when you when you when you see and when you hold a baby in your hand and you see how much the baby is utterly dependent on other people to care for it and to keep it alive then you fully appreciate the power of the incarnation jesus was someone who had to be breastfed by his mother he was someone who had to have his diaper changed by his mother he was someone who had to learn to walk and talk and eat by his family he was taught the scriptures by his family and when we understand that some of us and this is me we didn't even like you talked about this you talked about this earlier Lisa, when you said on facebook you didn't even like to stay in hotels that aren't up to our standards right <laughs> <laughs> that's the movie side of me <laughs> When someone talking about let's let's do a, let's let's do a, a, a Uber a, a regular Uber or Uber pool. You're like I'm not trying to do an Uber pool. I, I the Lord it took me too far. No, listen, listen, listen. I'm bougie. I be trying to pretend like I didn't eat chitlins growing up. Chitlins, that's nasty. But I'm from the South. This is what we did. What I'm saying is that we get to this this place in society. We think we're better than certain things, and they're beneath us. And the incarnation showed that there was nothing beneath God. There was no place God wasn't willing to go in order to bring us back to himself. And if we take the incarnation seriously as a theological method, we don't see anyone who's beyond the pale of God's forgiveness. We don't say, well, those people down there, they're too wild, they're too violent, they're too ghetto, they're too whatever. They need to get themselves together before they come to church. No, no, no. The incarnation says that rather than asking them to come to us, Right, God comes to them. And if we want to follow Jesus, we gotta follow Jesus where Jesus went. And Jesus was Jesus went amongst the poor and the neglected. Who's at the nativity scene? Nobody with money. Nobody with money. Shepherds broke. Mary broke. Elizabeth, I mean, um uh Joseph probably broke. The people whose house they was in probably broke. Nobody with money. And these are the people to whom God revealed himself in glory. But I'm sorry, and I'm gonna let it go. But we want all of the we th what I'm saying is and I get it, we want all of the famous people to come to our church. We think that we've done something. The Christian tends to celebrate the famous convert. I'm not trying to say I'm above it. Our Kanye becomes a Christian, Justin Bieber, whoever becomes a Christian, we got oh, somebody with money has become a Christian, therefore Christianity somehow receives some validation. And the and what the actual Christmas message says is that God doesn't need somebody famous to bring him glory. God can get glory from the shepherds. And so it should change forever how, who we value in the church. And the, I'm not sure that's always the case. I think that sometimes we, we treat celebrities like pelts. And you can get one of them in our church, we've done something. Yes. And most of the time people want celebrities in their church because they want glory, not necessarily God wanting glory. Um, so I'm gonna leave it alone. Yeah. I'm gonna leave it alone. I'm saying like I don't I am I celebrate everyone's conversion, but I am not at all I don't I don't need somebody famous to love Jesus for me to love Jesus. And I feel like why 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 does why do, why the shepherds? Why the shepherds? Mm -hmm. Shepherds who are in the field. You gotta understand this. The shepherds 
see angelic host giving glory to God. God was just flexing. He said to people who, who have no status in society, here, let me manifest my glory to you. I have an opportunity to celebrate my son and who I'm going to celebrate it with. I have a, um, when my son, um, I took my son to a speaking event. I think it's for his ninth birthday. We were in North Carolina and LaCroix was there. And so we're singing, it was, it was at the UNC, we're singing at UNC Chapel Hill. And we're singing happy birthday. And so the, the, the kids in, in, at Chapel Hill, college students in Chapel Hill are singing happy birthday. And in and, and a second, like LaCroix just joins in because everybody else is singing happy birthday. And my son is excited because a Grammy award winning author I mean, I'm a musician, sung happy birthday to my son. And he said, like, oh, this my birthday means something because LeCrae was there for my birthday and the, and the UNC basketball team was there for my birthday, which is great. I was the hero dad because I did that. But when Jesus, when God went to celebrate the birthday for his son, who did he invite to the party? Who did he invite? He invited the shepherds. Uh-huh. Scrubs. <laughs> so yeah. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling all the feelings right now about baby Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely something to think about. Um, so as we're thinking through uh, who was there uh, and, and we were talking about the shepherds, it's important that some some brothers, um, some wise men uh, that, that were brown skin uh, showed up to, to the party. Um, I don't know. If they, I don't know if they follow fall in the broke category. Um, the, but, the, wise, the wise, the wise men were probably people of means, who were probably either um, court officials that had some some status in Babylon in the east, who come from the east to um, see the baby Jesus. By the time they get there, and this is where the, the nativity scenes are probably. Um, a little bit off that the, the unless the shepherds hung around for a couple of years, the shepherds are gone by the time the wise men arrive. But the wise men um, came from the east. But not only the wise men came from the east, they came because of a star. And historically, this idea of looking at the stars and the constellations as a means of encountering God would have been seen as scandalous in a in a Jewish context. The idea is that this is actually true. Astrology isn't real. So people were talking about, oh, I'm a Scorpio. I'm all that's paganism, right? And so this idea that God will lead people to His Son by means of an, an astronomical sign was itself scandalous, and it shows how God is willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to see His Son. And He didn't leave them in astrology. That's not what I'm saying. He brought them to an encounter with Jesus. And so you see, Jesus. And, but the point of that, though is that from the beginning, once again, God is bringing the nations to worship him. So who is there who meets the baby Jesus? People from a different ethnic group, the Middle East, who've now arrived to worship Jesus. So it's, it's possible to say a person of color. And one of the things that people ask about, I think these are the wrong questions, right? Well, were they black? I mean, no, they weren't black in the classical sense. But what I would like to say, I like to use the, 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 the Alabama the Alabama rule. So when I say the Alabama rule, if it's 1965, the police pull you over and they start harassing you, you can't say, well, I'm actually not black. I'm at least that. They're not going to care about all of that. <laughs> you, you, you find yourself as a part of an, an oppressed class. What, what, what the gospel is actually trying to say is that from the beginning, 
God wanted to draw the nations to his son. And in so much as the people come from outside of Israel, their manifestation of the nations coming to Jesus. And in so much as anybody, this is actually not just black people, people from Europe, people from South America, people from Asia, all of us are part of God bringing the nations to his son. What we tend to think of, is we tend to think of Europe as being the center and then African-Americans are added to this European story. That's not actually what happens. It's a Jewish story to which Africans are added and Europeans are added. So actually the Europeans who converted Christianity are themselves a manifestation of the gospel going to the nations. So what I'm saying is an Italian converting to Christianity is just as multi-ethnic as a, as a Ethiopian converting to Christianity because neither one of them were part of God's people from the beginning. That was Israel. This is an Israelite story to which all of us are included. Europe doesn't own, in that sense, the Christian story. We're both late comers to the story. And as a point of order, like the Ethiopians were here first. That's that's extremely helpful. Um, as we're thinking about um, themes um, and things in the Christian story, and we're thinking about Matthew trying to maybe correlate Jesus to Moses and Herod and the killing of um, babies um, that was in the Exodus account and also in Matthew's account. How should we think through how Matthew is tying um, the Exodus story in with um, the birth of Jesus? Well, the first thing is, and this, this is very important. I think it, it relates to um, our current context not just in the United States, but globally. The Moses story and the Herod story, where Herod orders the death of all children two years and under in Bethlehem, goes to show you how often the people in power are willing to sacrifice the poor to maintain that power. Because Herod knew, because the people in Bethlehem had no money and no status, he could treat them however he wanted to and then maintain his position in, in um, Israel. In the same way, Pharaoh knew that he could sacrifice the lives of these children to maintain status in um, in Egypt. And so what you see then in both the Moses story and the Herod story is this, this reality that our politicians historically are those who do not care about what happens to the poor if the end result is they keep what they desire. And what the gospel story is trying to say, what the Moses story is trying to say, is that even when the tyrants think that they're doing their worst, that God still remains sovereign. And so Jesus is born into a world that slaughters innocents. Actually, I talk about this in my in article that's coming out in a couple of days. Um, that Jesus is born into a world that slaughters innocents. Because this is actually what the world is. It's really easy for us to look at the Christmas story and see, you know, think of a white Christmas and and snowy mountaintops and, and eggnog and families and trees. But that's not the that's not the world that we live in. We live in a world that kills innocent children. It doesn't care about what happens to the poor as long as they get to eat what they want. And this is precisely the world that God came into to save. Oh, did I just disappear? No, you're good. Okay. This is precisely the world that God came to save. And in so much as Jesus is, is, is someone who it, 
and this is hard. We we talk about this stuff in political, but sometimes you got to read the Bible. This is what happens. Jesus is born into a world of political unrest and violence. He flees that world to go to another country where there is less political violence. What is that other than a refugee who is internally displaced? Jesus is born into a family on the run. And so we know that our God knows what it is like to be in a country where it is no longer safe for him to live. He must go to a separate place. So Jesus spent the first few years of his life in Africa, in Egypt and foreign soil. And he probably went from Jerusalem, it's not Bethlehem, as a um, literally a political refugee because people were seeking his life to a foreign country where he might have a better future. Now, I did not believe that you can go straight from the Christmas story to American immigration policy. I'm not even a politician in that sense. I don't even know all of the laws. What I can say is this. It is impossible to read that story and, and, and not in some sense have a deep sense of compassion towards the refugee because our God knows what that's like. And that compassion is meant to form the Christian. This, this is what I would say. When God told the people in Egypt to be forgiving of or, or show compassion to the, the foreigner, he said, because you yourselves have won foreigners and slaves in Egypt. And so in other words, Israel's history of slavery was supposed to create in them a deep sense of compassion that impacted how they viewed other foreigners. And so what I'm saying to the Christian is before we get to the question of policy, we have to ask the question of what is our posture? And our posture as a Christian should be one in which at the forefront of our concern is not our individual welfare, but the welfare of those who are most needy. Because God said, God saw precisely in as much as we cared about those who are marginalized, something of the nature of his gospel. Because in God's eyes, all of us, in that sense, are needy, and God's compassion towards us is an act of grace. So we need to extend that grace to other people. That's helpful. Um, as we think about uh, this, I'm trying to make sure, looking over the notes and make sure we cover everything we wanted to, to cover. What is something... Um, as we think about hope, because I think we're living in a time where people are feeling less and less, uh, they're feeling hopeless more and more. Um, I think about getting on social media and looking at all the things that are going on and how much trauma and how much stuff we experience on a daily basis, how much information that will literally suck the hope out of you. Um, and thinking about the chaos in the White House, thinking about what's going on in just our communities, um, thinking about the the our personal stress. So there's layers of stress that's on us daily that we intake. And I was thinking about tweeting this today, like my my life is stressful as it is. I can't imagine like how people go on social and argue with people all day. Like I'm like, yeah. How do y'all manage to argue with strangers when real life is stressful? Like that seems to be adding stress upon stress. I don't have that bandwidth, but other people do, and I don't know for the life of me how they do it. Um, but apart from that, it's like we're living in constant state of 
trauma, constant state of hopelessness. What hope can we glean from the Christmas story to help us with the hopelessness that we face in the world today? So the, the, the subtitle of my book, I'm not trying to sell the book, but it is called African-American Biblical Interpretation as Exercise in Hope. And the book was actually written with this exact question in mind, is how do we continue to hope as Black Christians? So forgive me, I'm going to talk about what uh, a section of my book really briefly. I'm going to tell the story, but maybe y'all won't need to buy it. Let me speak on it. Let me speak on it. It's about Zachariah and Elizabeth and how they function within the story. So the question is, why does Luke begin the story with Zachariah and Elizabeth instead of beginning the story with Jesus? I think he begins the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth because they function as a link between um, the entire history of Israel before the coming of the Messiah. Because Zechariah and Elizabeth are old and they've lived their entire lives before God, but they have no children. And so they know nothing but a deep, deep disappointment. We know that they're disappointed because when Zechariah goes into the temple and and he, God says, the angel Gabriel says, your prayers have been heard. Zechariah is an old man. And when he says your prayers have been heard, what prayers are you talking about? The prayers for his son. So Zechariah has carried this deep hurt throughout the entirety of his life, but he's remained faithful to God. But there's more than that. Zechariah was a priest, and Elizabeth was from a priestly family. What does that mean? That every day of his life, he was a clergy person who was responsible for articulating to a people. Israel at the time was enslaved. They were under the dominion of the Roman Empire. So he was a pastor in a context in which their people weren't free. So you don't think that the people came to Zechariah and Elizabeth day in and day out? If God is so good, why is Rome still in charge of us? If God is so good, why is this soldier going crazy to me? If God is so good, why are my taxes so high? So every day, Zechariah is having to make Zechariah and Elizabeth, because she's from a clergy family too. She grew up in it, right? And so she comes home and hears about her father who dealt with these same things. So Zechariah and Elizabeth has spent their entire lives making sense of the faith to the oppressed. And they've done so while at the same time dealing with their own personal trauma of not having a child. And so when God shows up to Zechariah and Elizabeth and says, Zechariah and Elizabeth, your prayers have been heard. It is not simply an answer to their prayers. It is a vindication of long suffering. So the sign of the son, John, is not just a sign of God being faithful to Zechariah and Elizabeth. It is a sign of God being faithful to his promises full stop. You don't need everybody to get a miracle. You need enough people to get a miracle for there to be hope. How does it relate to black people? I want to say that African-American Christians who came to faith in the context of slavery were like Zachariah and Elizabeth. They came to Jesus in the context where for generation after generation after generation, their ancestors had been enslaved. And they had to deal with the question of, how can I be a Christian in a context of a society that denies our basic humanity? But nonetheless, these children, these African-Americans persisted. And if you read, you can go back and read it. Read the early slave testimonies. 
the early slave testimonies make an explicit claim, and this is the claim. The claim is that it was not Abraham Lincoln who freed the slaves. It was God who acted through the, the Civil War to bring about black freedom. They claim it directly. God did this. God did this. And they claim, the African-Americans claim, that God was vindicated in their freedom. This is what they said. And if you're going to claim to, to appropriate African-American history, then we've got to take that testimony seriously. And, that, and, and the, the testimony of the African-American church is God has been vindicated through the expansion of freedoms of African-Americans. So what is the child thing? What is the child in this context, in the African-American context in the United States? What is the promised child that is a symbol of hope? To me, the promised child that is a symbol of hope is the black church. The black church is the miracle at the center of the African-American community that forces us to ask the question, how did this come to be? And if we're going to take, if we're going to take the testimony of the African-American church seriously, you have to take, we have to take this testimony seriously, which is this. No, the world is not all that we want it to be. No, black people don't have everything that we, we want to have in this society. But the expansion of freedoms for African-Americans from slavery through Jim Crow, through the civil rights movement, up through today, has been as a result of the providential hand of God who's consistently intervened in our lives. And in each inter each intervention in itself is enough hope to carry on. And so what I'm saying then, what does Zachariah and Elizabeth do for us? They call upon us to take seriously the testimony of our ancestors who persisted in faith generation after generation after generation. Zachariah and Elizabeth function in the gospel story as a challenge to cynicism. That God will, that God has forgotten us, and they show that God has not forgotten us. And for us in our context now, we have to say that the testimony of our ancestors to the goodness of God challenges black cynicism and forces us to ask the question, well, maybe God hasn't abandoned us. And so what is it that gives you hope in a context in which the world seems to be coming apart? The perseverance of the faith of our ancestors in the context of oppression. And they can carry on, we can carry on. That's helpful. That's helpful. We were talking, we were talking about um, how the miracle of Jesus anticipates skepticism. Yes. Um, because, you know, as, as an apologetic organization, it seems as if the birth of Jesus leaves skepticism because it's like, why would you impregnate a virgin? You know what I'm saying? So he, he performs a miracle uh, with Mary, but he anticipates skepticism and unbelief. Um, yeah, and he, yeah. and, oh, go ahead. No, and he, he comes into, it's almost like, so here's the thing. And this, and this is, there's this, um, Paul gets himself in trouble. And he's in Acts and he says, why do you think it impossible that God could raise the dead? And what Paul is saying is that once you posit God as a creator, all things become plausible. And after we, once we recognize that the world didn't come from nothing, but it was created by the sovereign hand of God, then things like incarnation don't become implausible. They come become manifestations of God's glory. And they become manifestation of God's humility. And the most offensive part of the Christian messages of the Christian message is often where God is most humble. So you talk the crucifixion and the incarnation. 
And this idea that God would reconcile himself to us by dying on a cross, the supreme manifestation of weakness is the manifestation of strength, offensive, seen as stupid, doesn't seem to make any sense. The incarnation, the almighty God becoming incarnate through a virgin, seem simple. But Paul talks about for those who are perishing in his foolishness, but for us the glory of God. And it's to me, God is most glorified in the places where the gospel presses most diff most, most most harshly against our skepticism and our cynicism. I will see your cynicism with the incarnation. That's what God does. You give me your cynicism, I'll give you the humility of the son coming in the form of a human being. That's powerful. And it just shows how uh, not like us he is um, and his ways being beyond us because there's his, the way he does it, we wouldn't have done it that way. Um, yeah. I would, <laughs> yeah. Y'all lucky I'm not God. I mean, <laughs> I would have been like, what? You said, <laughs> I was yeah. like, well, I, in the, never mind. I'm going to leave it alone. Yeah. But. God is God is revealed precisely in his goodness in the sense that he's not like us. And I know um, that I'm most, I'm being most faithful to God when I'm being obedient to him over against my inclinations. And there's all kinds of times where I would want to tell people about themselves and I would want to like kind of, the incarnation shows that God never gave up on us and he's going to the further extent possible. And it means that I'm also not allowed to give up on people. And if I can speak about this, this is also why I am not completely cynical about white Christians. Some people can say because of the historic things that that, that, that white Christians have done, that you know that, that the only future for us is as Christians of color, kind of making this coalition. But and I get all the criticisms of white Christians, what's happened in the United States, but but the whole but God didn't give up on me when I was sinning, when I was sinning, when I was broken. So I can't give up my brothers and sisters. So the incarnation demands me to go as far as, far as I can to reconcile to everybody precisely when it is costly. And it's and, and it's at that and it, it's when it hurts. It is when it when it hurts and when it is uncomfortable. Where I feel like I'm as close to the passion of the incarnation of Christ as I can possibly get as a Christian. Because we're not for that story, I might have a totally different attitude towards society and the culture. Uh, that's that's a challenging. Uh, that's a challenging. Uh, y'all would be y'all. They, they like the woke part when I say you got to forgive everybody. That's like, oh, that's too much. It's it's in the story. <laughs> right. When Jesus when Jesus is sitting on the cross, and he's saying, "Forgive them, for they know not what they do." He is talking to the people who are literally killing him. So if anybody got reason for beef and a lack of forgiveness, it's Jesus. And who does Jesus then, who joins the early church when after the resurrection? Pharisees, the people who, who participate in this crucifixion. And so there's no one who's ever beyond the scope of God's redemption. Don't mean that I don't tell you the truth about yourself. Because Jesus also said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to you. How often I've wanted, wanted to gather you, but you are not willing, right? Woe to you, Pharisees. Jesus both tells the truth and opens up the path to forgiveness. But you got me talking about the crucifixion now. You can invite me about that back for um for Easter again. So I'm going to leave that alone. <laughs> so after all that's been shared, is there anything else that you want to share in your closing thoughts? And also, 
wrap up your closing thoughts and how people can get in contact with you and um, mention and plug your book again, because I think it's going to be really important that people get that. And you got you to gotta plug it. Um, also, we want to plug the products that we have in the back. Um, <laughs> all right. As you can see above me, there's the book, Through Eyes of Color, which Esau's uh, Dr. McCauley's uh, work is uh, podcast is highlighted in that as well. Through Eyes of Color, you can get that on Amazon. Also, we have an online course to go along with um, with that um, curriculum. You can take it online. Also, there's a also a um, you can create your own group. So, say your church group wants to. Um, do the online course together. You can create your own group. You'll have your own little uh, our little group chat that y'all could go in and be taking the course together. There will be a leader that can um, set timelines on when each part module needs to be um, completed. It's really um, a good benefit for those who want to do it in group and who want to take the test together. And you also get a certificate um, at the end of that, a Jew3 Project certificate uh, to take that online course as well. So you can do that at learn.jew3project.org. Again, that's learn, L-E-A-R-N, dot Jew3project.org to take that. Also, we have merch, which is right there, um, at Jew3project.org. So all of those links are at Jew3project.org. I wanted to get a plug in, um, so make sure... You catch that also, we have a black church tour that's coming up, dates will be uh, released in the new year. I'm really excited about that. We're hitting um, some some um, churches that I'm excited about. Um, it will be our Through Eyes of Color Black Church Tour. And I'm very, very excited about that. Esau, your last your last thoughts after my, my commercial for G3 products. <laughs> um, I would say if you're interested, once again, in November 2020, the book is called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And at the center of it is me figuring out or looking at the ways in which Bible reading itself can address the issues and concerns facing African-Americans in our day. I deal with issues such as how does how do you think about a, a biblical theology of policing? How do you think about um, ethnic identity as a Christian? How do you think about political, political protest? What do, you, what do you do about black rage and black anger? And so I'm trying to think through ways in which we can read the Bible in a way that's hopeful as African-American Christians. And that'll be, once again, with IVP Academic in 2020. If you're looking for, if you're looking to follow me, you can follow me on, um, what is it called? Twitter, Esau McCauley, at Esau McCauley. And I have a Facebook page, also Esau McCauley. So you can follow me on the official Facebook page for announcements. And what I would probably want to say about the incarnation is, I think at the center of the incarnation is the story that God has come amongst us. Uh, they, they, the, the passage in Matthew, the virgin will give birth to a son and you call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And God came to us in the form of his son in great humility. And in that great humility, gathered around the people who are often ignored by society, we see in that story, the manifestation of God's glory in this attempt to, to bring all people to himself. And so if you are alienated from God, this, this, this is the, um, the call. Be reconciled to him on Christmas and find your way into somebody's church and worship the, worship the baby. Amen. That's helpful. Um, also, before we go, 
um, going back to these two products um, through eyes of color. <laughs> Make that money. Make that money. <laughs> Make that money. Um, people have been asking me, what's the difference between the leader's guide and the participant's guide? The leader's guide is if you're going to teach it, it is a small group curriculum. So if you're going to teach it, uh, you're going to go with the leader's guide. And also people have been saying, what's the content of the six-week guide? Um, I want to give them to you really quickly. It is uh, first... First week, first chapter is on what is hermeneutics to provide a framework on how to interpret scripture because a lot of people are falling into black cults because of the misinterpretation of scripture. Um, black people in the Bible is the second chapter. Early African Christianity is the third chapter. Fourth chapter is contributions of black churches. Fifth chapter is engaging black cults. Sixth chapter is places of contention in scripture, especially women and on uh, with a special emphasis on women in scripture and um, slavery. So it is a six week small group curriculum curated from the podcast. I'm so excited to partner with Yana Connor in, in creating this work of art. Um, I believe it is the first black Christian apologetics small group curriculum. Um for be uh, careful time you say you did something, people get mad at <laughs> no first black Christian apologetic small group the, black theology, not that I know. apologetic. I know. I'm, I'm just saying people be salty on the internet these days. You gotta be careful. I yeah, I know. So I want to make it clear Christian apologetics, black curriculum, not theological record. I want to make that caveat because I don't want nobody coming from It doesn't matter if it's the first one. Y'all need to buy because she's doing some good work in these streets. So y'all need to Thank support you. her. And if you this don't want to buy, you can always donate at Jew3project.org. It really helps us out in, in making us stronger for 2020. Um, there's a lot of work we want to do, but we need financial support to get there. So, um, Thank you. Thank you so much, Esau. This has been fantastic. And remember here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Until next time, God bless. God bless y'all. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.